0: As we consider God's incredible, faithful promises to us, even when we are but a wee little one, it acknowledges the importance of even this passage before us, one where a son of God has lost his way. And God, through fatherly discipline and grace, draws him back into relationship with the Lord. Thomas Jefferson's going to need that. We all need that. And we're going to see that in the Word of God in technicolor today as we pay attention to His Word. Our reading today comes from both 2 Samuel chapter 11 as well as selections from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. and They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, as she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. And they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son." But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and with his children, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. "...because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and have given them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in the few minutes that we have together here with your word opened before us, we would ask for your power, your spirit to come in great measure. Speak to us. Reveal to us what it is that you would have us to know. Convict us where we must be convicted. Cleanse us where it is that we need cleansing. Change us in where it is that we need changing. And above all, make us more like Christ. Use this word as a means of grace in our life and communicate to us the power of the gospel that brings to us the change that we need. Give us your spirit in ample measure, knowing the hearts of everyone here and the needs of this body. Work according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even the best men are men at best. We've been looking at a great man for the last several weeks together, King David, shepherd leader, looking at the high points of David's administration even last week if you were with us looking at the glorious story of Mephibosheth where he through great love for Jonathan out of great love for God came and he showed to what should have been an enemy of the state Tremendous affection and tremendous grace, making him an adopted son and a friend, pouring out all of his inheritance upon him. It's an amazing story of David's love last week for someone whom the world would have never considered to be an object of affection for a king, someone like Mephibosheth. What a difference a week makes. Where now we have David utterly self-interested, utterly self-indulgent, focused upon the gratification of his flesh with the exact opposite of sacrificial covenantal love in view. But now willing to perpetrate both offenses in sin against others and egregious crimes within the nation of Israel all because... Of giving in to the desires of the flesh. It's a reminder that the best of men are still men at best. And it's wise for us in this room to not approach this text with any sort of self righteousness, a kind of condescending spirit towards David. How could he do such a thing? If that be our spirit, we haven't even begun to know our own hearts. Because such is the heart of all of us in this room, truth be told. The seeds of every known sin lie resident within our own hearts. And given the right context and the removal of God's hand of protection, we too would fall into the same pattern of sin. And indeed, we have to acknowledge these sins are among us. The recognition of what is here is among us. It's represented in this room. And so, as we look at this, we need to enter into this story humbly, attentive, asking the Lord to reveal in our hearts the things that need to be exposed. We also need to acknowledge that this subject of sexuality, specifically, that's addressed within the pages of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, is a subject that for so many of us in this room brings up painful memories. Some in here have been victimized with sexual offenses against you. And to address this subject, it has the potential of re-wounding, of causing great pain, great heartache to rise up within you right now. I want to acknowledge that that's here in this room. And I want you to hear that I believe that the Lord has an encouraging word to say to you as this subject comes up and all kinds of defenses and sensitivities arise. And I want you to listen with a heart that I believe the Spirit would want you to listen with as God shows you that He takes seriously those who perpetrate perpetrate sexual crimes. Let's also be quite aware there are those of us in this room who live parallel lives. That there is one life that is visible to the world and there is another life that we keep tightly hidden with great parameters and buffers so as to not let anyone in. And we see David, one who now at what is the zenith of his success, begin to walk a parallel life. And we see the disaster that it wields in his own life and the collateral damage that it wields on the lives that are around him. So let's set the stage acknowledging there are those of us, we've sinned sexually in this room, we've been sinned against sexually in this room, and this subject brings up tremendous amount of defenses and sensitivities for us. As we own that, and as we state it, as we name it before the presence of God this morning, allow those things to be what they are, and then let God speak into them. As today we submit ourselves to his word. I want to look at this passage, and I know this will sound scary at the front end. I want to look at this passage in six ways, okay? Now, I know you're used to three ways, and you know how long it takes me to get through three points. So don't hear double the length of a sermon and get really scared. We're going to do the very best we can to move promptly through these points, but they're all very critical, They're very, very critical, and what we want to do is we want to pay really close attention to the pattern of sin and how it's put to death and the recognition of the gospel in it, all right? So I want to run through these six points with you and set the stage for the pace that we're going to take through this passage together and then ask the Lord to really do that work through His Holy Spirit. I want you to see, first of all, the conceiving of sin, the conceiving of sin, In this passage, and you should hear a double entendre in that word, conceiving. For indeed, there is a child that is conceived within this text, but there is a plot of sin that was conceived long before the reality of the conception of that child, and we need to pay close attention to that. I want you to see, secondly, the cover up of sin. There's a really strong attempt to cover the tracks in the midst of this passage, and it's the normal path that our hearts want to go when we're found out. We want to see that in this text. Thirdly, we want to see the confrontation with sin. God's man, Nathan, bringing to bear the truth upon David's life and drawing him into repentance. We want to see, fourthly, the confession of sin from David. Fifthly, the consequences of sin. And then sixthly, the cross for our sin. Conceiving, cover-up, confrontation, confession, consequences, cross. Let's look first at the conceiving of sin. Now, it's a a quick point in the text, but it's really critical, and we have to pay attention to it. Notice verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Stop right there. It's the season of the year that the kings go out to battle, and David, the king... Doesn't go out to battle. Instead, we're told at the end of verse one, but David remained at Jerusalem. Why is this important? Well, it's critically important because David is at a spiritually precarious place. Now, we wouldn't know that from the opening of this text. In fact, he's been incredibly victorious militarily and as a leader over the last several chapters. We've just sh- seen last week. His tremendous sacrifice for the love of Mephibosheth, if at any point we would see this is a spiritual high that David is on, but indeed we see that he's at a spiritually precarious place. And there are two reasons for it. He has been wildly successful, which tends to be a place of great vulnerability. And he's in a moment where there is no real trials in his life. It's absence of trial, wildly successful. Now, that may seem, again, a place of privilege, but you know your life, and you know your tendencies. When you sense that you are 10 foot tall and bulletproof, when you sense that you are um, away from the difficulties of life and you've hit a nice little circumstantially joyful plateau in life, it's when we begin to let our guards down. It's exactly what I believe we see at the beginning of this passage. So much so that David says, I know all the other kings are going to go out, but I've been warring a long time. I'm going to give myself a break. I'm going to step back from what is my responsibility to protect the kingdom. And I'm going to send Joab, the captain of the armies, to go in my stead. And I'm going to stay back at the palace because clearly I have a ton of things to do. I'm the king after all. We can't risk me anymore. Let's put other people on the front lines and it's oftentimes isn't it when we begin to step back from our first vocational call and responsibility that we create space for ourselves to get into big trouble we see david in the text is actually getting up for from a late afternoon nap he's been on the couch for who knows how long was it a late night of partying and he's just waking up in the middle of the afternoon or has he just gotten so tired from, from the very large, luscious lunch that he had enjoyed? And so he's getting up from a siesta in the afternoon and he's looking for something to do. We don't know the context, but the, but the passage spends time being sure we know that he was on his couch in the late afternoon. In a moment where it should be working hours, David has kicking back and relaxing, letting his guard down. And little did he know, though he had not gone to battle, a battle was coming for him. Isn't that often the case in our own lives? Is the battle comes looking for us sometimes when we cease to face the battles that the Lord has put in our lives vocationally. And here is David, found with his guard down. And I want to say it in a way that hopefully you can see. Why it is this context is so important with, those lang- with the language of he remained in Jerusalem. If David were doing what he was supposed to be doing, he wouldn't have been at home with nothing to do. And he wouldn't have walked out on the veranda of the palace looking for something to do, he would, which wouldn't have opened up an opportunity for, do, for him doing what he definitely shouldn't have done in this text. When you begin to retrace your steps with regards to the pattern of of sin in your own life, and maybe specifically sexual sin in your life, isn't it always one decision after another leading down a path that ultimately leads to a place of vulnerability in the conceiving of that sin? When we begin to retrace our steps, don't we often see there was neglect, there was lack of soul attention there was shirking of responsibility. There was space that was created in moments of vulnerability. And it was there that we found ourselves like putty in the hand. Especially in, with regards to temptation. David remained in Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the key conceiving of sin. I want you to see secondly though, he saw, verse 2. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Beautiful. Now, we, the recognition here, David just walked out on his veranda. He wasn't out looking for it. He wasn't going to a club. He wasn't searching for images on the internet. He wasn't looking for the evil that he fell into. The evil came to him. In a sense, the temptation came to him. And it's the way it sometimes works even in the course of our life, isn't it? where we are confronted with a vision of temptation, a picture of temptation that's before us. And it's simply through the moving through life. But the question is not the initial glimpse. The question is, do we look again? Does it move, as it were, from simply seeing to looking? Does it move from glimpse to a gaze? Does it move from an innocent shot of the eye in one direction to an indulgent stare. And it seems quite clear in this passage that David was getting an eyeful. And in the eyeful that David was giving, it was tantalizing the desires of his heart. And he began now to move down into another stage of sinfulness. Now the recognition, friends, is we can't slip past that without acknowledging that it is often through the eye gate that the temptation of sexuality hits us most poignantly. If that were not the case, we wouldn't read staggering statistics of pornographic use in North America in our time with regards to Internet use. But we do read those statistics. And it's utterly destroying us, both as a nation, as a culture, where we are now objectifying bodies to such degree that we are using people as resources for our own pleasure. This is the reality of how the eyes often work in stirring the lusts of the flesh, which means like Job has told us in Job 31, we've got to make a covenant with our eyes. We've got to be intentional on having renewed our mind that we're ready when the temptation comes that we are going to divert our attention and we are going to focus somewhere else and we're not going to catch a second and third glimpse and begin to run the imaginative path in our minds. He saw. He remained. He saw and then he asked. Verse 3, So tell me about her. Who is she? I'm listening. I'm interested. It's almost like a, a group of, 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 of friends who are at the bar and looking across the way and making eye contact with some girl. Hey, never seen her around here before. Anybody got any ideas as to who she is? It's that kind of conversation that David is engaging in with those who are his confidants around him, his servants. And then he gets this instruction. Well, this is the daughter of Eliam, right? And this is, this, is the, this is the bride, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, in that moment, it should have been a screeching halt for David. He knows the law of God. He's fully aware of the fact that this is another man's wife. And he's been reminded of Eliam, a faithful warrior within the ranks of his army, that this is his very daughter, someone of whom he works with closely. This often causes a pause in our heart, isn't it, when we begin to learn, wait, that could get tricky. If I keep going down this path, we're looking at what could be a public scandal. Doesn't that often keep you from doing dumb things? keeps me from doing dumb things. Sometimes when, when the mind begins to, to, to gravitate in a sinful direction and we begin to, to entertain the possibility of, and then all of a sudden, wait, that's the daughter of so-and-so, that's the wife of such-and-such, and they're connected to, to, to all of these people, and this kind of thing could, could be the fallout. All of a sudden, for a lot of us, we just go, let's hold the horses right there. You know, that's God's grace in our life when that happens. Have you had that kind of sanity happen to you? where you've been moving down a path and the Lord all of a sudden restores or renews your mind and you realize, I'm I'm acting in a way that is foolish and dumb and could potentially cost me a life of regret. When that happens in your life, when that happens in your mind, pay attention to it. Now, it's not the highest level of motivation for the killing of sin. I would love to tell you that most of the time I am just so inflamed with love from the Lord that when sin comes, I can't imagine ever doing something against him. That's not the case. A lot of times a very initial reaction is, now wait, if I do that dumb thing, it's going to cost me big if I get caught. It is oftentimes the Lord's graciousness that puts that into our minds and gives us the righteous fear of consequence from the recognition of the committing of that sin. Don't despise that. Listen to that. Now, sadly, in David's context here in this, he just rode right on past that warning. He missed it entirely. And I think the reason that he missed it entirely is the fact that sin is insane. It is just absolutely insane. When, when we have committed, and all of us in this room in various ways have or will, when we have gotten to a place where someone has caught us in any kind of matter of sin, sexual or otherwise, and we look back on it and we think, gosh, how did I get here? What was I thinking? Have you ever had that thought in your own mind? What was I thinking? This, th- that's what you were doing, and you were one step at a time getting there, and before you knew it, all of what was really rational and wise and made sense was very far removed from your mind and your heart. And what was on your your mind was what the instant gratification or pleasure that would come from that which you desired. And we know that there can be a bewitching kind of spell that can often come over us with regards to sexuality. And I think something of that very nature happened here for David. Be forewarned. And what we see is as he moves from remaining in Jerusalem, from seeing, from asking, it moves into the fourth stage. He took her and he lay with her. It's interesting the way the text actually unfolds. There's no romance. (laughs) There's no, no, he he doesn't pick her up in a chariot, take her out to eat, send her a bouquet of flowers. There's no romance. There's no wooing. It's very active and it's very David prime mover in the text. This man is on the hunt and he will not be denied. That's the feel of this passage. We have to also remember Bathsheba who is not presented in this passage in any critical or negative way. We are unsure of her emotional response to the overtures of David. What we see very clearly, though, is David, the king of Israel, is exercising overtures towards her, and what could be presented to us is an unhealthy and ungodly exercise of power over another. He summoned her and sent people to get her to bring her to the palace. That's the way the text presents it. And we have to simply acknowledge that that's where the focus is in this text. Now I want you to see if you notice the progression. He remained, he saw, he asked, he took, he lay. It sounds just like James 1. James 1, verses 14 to 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived... So what we're looking at, when desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's very clear in James that he's, he's separating out temptation and sin. Those are distinct realities. And sexual drive or sexual desire is made by God and it is good. It is what he desires for a husband and a wife within the confines of a monogamous marriage that's what he desires it's beautiful he uses it as a picture of his own love towards us as his church it's a glorious thing to almighty god outside of the context in which god has prescribed the gift of sexuality it becomes a monstrosity and the people who exercise outside of those parameters can witness in first hand the destruction it does internally and relationally to others can we not We know it, don't we? We know it. It must have been the worst news in verse 5 of our text when we're told that now it is Bathsheba who's sending word to David, not David sending a word to Bathsheba. And the word that she says to David is, I am pregnant. I have a dear pastor friend who now, by God's grace, Knows the Lord, serving the Lord was not for a long period of his life. The girl that he had dated for many years wind up getting her pregnant. Through that pregnancy, the Lord brought him into a saving relationship with himself as he lowered him, brought him to a very, very destitute place spiritually in his life and then ultimately calling him later into ministry. And he is recounting to me the experience of hearing those words out of his then girlfriend's mouth as the worst news imaginable. The expression, I am pregnant, is never supposed to be bad news. It just isn't. It's supposed to be joyous news. It's supposed to be a gift from the Lord. That's how the Lord describes children. But when it's outside the context of a committed covenant relationship, it hits us as soul wrecking to get that news, and it certainly did for David here. He was hoping for a one night stand, and things just got complicated. And it's a warning to us in this sin is complicated righteousness is often really clear, hard, (laughs) but clear. Sin gets really complicated. Ever told a lie? Yes. We've told lies. We've told lies, and then we've had to remember the lies. And then we've had to tell other people what was a lie to keep the lie Going and we had to continue to keep the charade up in case we were found out and then there's a high level of anxiety that someone's going to find and now there's potential evidence that you had told a lie and now what if someone uncovers that and then you're going to be exposed sin gets very complicated it gets very complicated and it looks like it's pleasure and it ends in tremendous pain and oftentimes in a life of regret And this is what David tries to do in verses 6 to 17, here of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Instead of hearing those words, I am pregnant, we need to go to the priest and confess our sin. We need to come clean with everyone. David does what is our initial tendency whenever we think we're going to be found out. And that is cover up. He has three approaches in the text. In verses 7 to 16, the first is the Mr. Nice Guy approach. The second is the drunken party approach. And the third is I am going to kill you approach. Those are really the approaches, three approaches, and they're escalating. The first is the nice guy approach. I know what I'll do. I'll contact Joab, I'll get Uriah the Hittite in, and we'll 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 figure out how to make this this covered up. We'll we'll get this working. He invites Uriah in and he has small talk with Uriah. Sports news and weather, very friendly. How are things out on the, the battlefield? Everybody got what they need? Weaponry, food. Oh, I'm glad to hear it, Uriah. You're awesome. You're amazing. You're among the 30. So glad I just want to have you in, just bless you. Why, you know, war is hard. War is hard, Uriah. I used to do it. Um, now I've got you doing it. So, so you're, you're out there. It's really hard. Why don't you go take a break? Why don't you go down to your house today and, and wash your feet? It's the language of the text. Go wash your feet. Now, now hopefully you can cut through the euphemism of that language and understand what he's trying to say. I want you to go home and get a shower because you're smelly and you've come off the battlefield. I want you to get a good meal because you've been, you know, eating ramen noodles out there on the campgrounds and I want you to enjoy the affections of your wife. And what man is not going to say yes to that is David's thought. Except for maybe Uriah who comes in contact, Uriah's integrity comes into contact with David's duplicity. And he says to David, David, there's no way I can go do that. If the ark of the Lord and Joab, my commander, and the military warriors are out there sleeping under the stars, warring for the safety of our country, how can I go live it up in pleasure at my home? Now, I hope that you can hear the the, the piercing of the sword into David's heart, because that's exactly what David's doing, living it up experiencing all of the pleasures of the palace while everybody else goes and serves the interests of the kingdom. And Joab says, far be it from me to be a man like that. And so David says, okay, all right, fine, you know. Stay another day or two. Plan B, get him drunk throw a big party, get him full of a lot of food, get his defenses down, get him out of control with regards to himself, and then surely all of his principled behavior will go by the wayside so he can accomplish what it is I want him to accomplish at his home with his wife. But again, we see at the end of that section of his ploy that he goes and he sleeps in the servants' quarters on their couches instead of going home. By this time, David is frustrated. He's a king. He's not used to people not doing what it is he doesn't want them to do. They say, yes, sir, when he tells them to do things. And Joab, on principle, has been unwilling to do so. And now we've moved from nice guy to party to death. He writes a letter to Joab. He's going to to orchestrate a kind of fake um, war battle intersection with the Ammonites where some of the valiant men of Israel will meet some of the valiant men of, of the Ammonites and they're going to at the right time strategically back up and have Uriah out there on the front lines like a sitting duck. It'll be like, it'll be like a kid in a candy store being able to take it from, the, from those who are, who are our enemies who will be looking for a Uriah, one of our valiant men, to be able to lay low. And David in the cold heart, I want you to sense the cold heart is who takes that letter? Uriah. Uriah's given the letter with the seal of David on it with the instructions to kill Uriah. Uriah's last enlistment from David is his own death certificate of the instructions that's gonna lead him into his death. It's remarkable. Now, as we think through that, though, have you not at times gone to great lengths, hopefully not to the lengths of David in this passage, of covering up what you didn't want exposed? It is our tendency when we are caught in sin to reorganize rather than repent. That's our tendency. Let's reshuffle the deck, let's reorganize, let's replot, let's don't repent. Let's don't come clean. Let's don't own it. Let's don't take it to the Lord. Let's don't make it right with the others. That's our tendency and that's the cover-up plan that we see here with regards to David. But then verse 27 comes. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. The Lord's not mentioned at all in this passage up to verse 27. He's not mentioned at all. You won't hear his name. He's not involved. He's not active. We don't hear an evaluation until verse 27. Verse 27 tells us that the Lord is the all-seeing eye. And he is searching out every thought, every word, and every deed. And though David looks like the prime mover of the passage, it will be God Underneath and in that shows that he is the prime mover of this passage as he begins to exercise righteousness and justice in the case of David. And this is where God comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, you have a task, and the task that I've given you is to confront the sin of David. And he does it marvelously. It's, it's one of... The most beautiful confrontations with regards to sin that you will see in the Bible. Largely because I want you to see the wisdom of Nathan here. Nathan does not go up to David and say, hey, you sinned, you need to get right with God. That's not what he does. Because as we know, if you've ever had that experience with someone who's come and confronted you that way, what is your typical heart response? Defensiveness sensitivities, explanations, excuses, all kinds of reasons and rationales for why you did the thing that you did. You're going to do anything but repent. So what does Nathan do? Well, he springs it on David. He doesn't go at it directly. He goes at it at a slant. And he does something that Jesus often does, and that is tell a parable and then put the person in it. It's what he did over and over with the Pharisees. And so he tells the story of a rich man and a poor man And the rich man who's got a guest coming to town, he's got all these herds and he decides not to use any of them. But the poor man has one little ewe lamb that he's cared for and loved his whole life. And the rich man decides that he's going to take the poor man's ewe lamb and he's going to serve it at the dinner table for his guest to protect his own self-interest. And I want you to see, obviously, who David is in the passage, which is the rich man who has already at this point more than one wife And a number of concubines who's in a palace, who has everything at his disposal. And Uriah the Hittite has his his one woman, has his small home, has his faithful service. And he's the one that's being robbed from in this context. And it worked beautifully in the way that Nathan had hoped, in the way the Spirit of the Lord laid the groundwork in David's heart because we're told that it kindled an anger, a wrath inside of David when he heard this level of injustice. This man deserves to die, he says. And you have to wonder if Nathan's thinking, Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Because, David, you are that man. Now, as you hear me say those words, isn't there something that just is a settled sobriety about the sharpness of that confrontation that humbled David on the spot? Alexander White put it this way. He said, Nathan had his sword at David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what he does here. And he does it to expose the sinfulness of David. Now, as he confronts the sin, David, we read in verse 13, confesses his sin. Notice what he says. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, as we read that, we might go, okay, well, you seem to have sinned against Bathsheba, too, and you sinned against Uriah. He'd probably have a grievance or two he could raise uh, with regards to your sinfulness. But what's he saying here? He's saying the source of my iniquity, the real source of my wrongdoing, does not first and foremost lie with man. It lies with God. God is the one who's created me. I I am made in his image. He is the one who I have truly and most deeply affronted and offended. And it's his holiness that ultimately must be paid for with regards to the iniquity that I have done. And David is acknowledging that. We read earlier in Psalm 51 in our confession of sin, that was David's psalm that he wrote after the situation with Bathsheba. When he's saying, purge me with hyssop, blot out my transgressions. This is a man who's leading repentance among the people of Israel after his own sin and falling. And we read gloriously by God in this word that he says to David, David, I'm going to let this sin pass. You will not die for it. And you should wonder, how does Nathan get the authority to do that? To say you're not, because it was a capital offense to murder someone in the Old Testament and the potential of the death penalty was there. How does Nathan get the right to be able to do that? He says this, because there is one that is going to pay the penalty for you instead. Now you see this in the consequences of David's sin in this passage, When he comes to David and he says to David, David, your sin will be passed over. Guess what? The son of your iniquity, the child that you had with Bathsheba, is going to die. Is going to die. There is consequences. There's penalty for the sins that you've committed. The Lord is covering you, but not so much for your son. And you may hear... In that, as I would hear in an initial hearing of that logic, that's really unfair. <laughs> I mean, the, the child didn't do anything wrong. It was it was David who did something wrong. But of course, that's the point of the text is that there will be another woman who will receive the horrifying news on the front end that I am pregnant but not because of adultery to another man but because she was never married and had never known a man she's going to say those words I am pregnant and she's going to receive the social stigma of what it means to be one who would be cast aspersion upon because of apparent wickedness and she is going to bear a son. And the son that she is going to bear is completely innocent. And it is that son who is going to pay for all of her sin. It's not the least bit fair. But friends, fair is not what you want. Grace is what you want. Surely David was the one who should have received the sickness unto death that the child received in 2 Samuel 12. But don't you see the child is a picture of Jesus? The child is only a picture of the one who will be fully innocent, who will pay for the sins of all of the people, who will trust in him, who will in this room, for those of you who know Christ, he has paid for your sexual brokenness. He's paid for it. He's paid for those thoughts. He's paid for those clicks with a mouse. He's paid for those private deeds. He's paid for those of you in here living a parallel life if you know Christ. He has paid for it and he is calling you to come out from it. That is what he's doing today. That's what he's calling you to. Don't cover this up, don't make light of his grace. Bring it out into the open. Don't let the progression of the conceiving of sin unto death continue to wreak havoc in your life. You know what kind of fear and shame and guilt you're living under. I speak as one who gets it, not as one who imagines what that would be. A sinful man who wants to see this change his life as much as it changes yours. That we would begin to live by this kind of love that would lead us to repentance. Don't you remember it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? What kindness do we see in this passage regarding the quality of his love and his grace towards us who are sinners? Friends, this is the kind of gospel that we need. This is the kind of grace that we need. Because good luck in trying to fix all of that sexual brokenness yourself. You can't. Only Christ can. But together in a confession, in repentance, in a grace-centered, gospel-driven life where we are pressing into each other to see and behold Jesus, there is change and transformation that he can bring. Don't despair. Come to Christ in the midst of that darkness. He'll bring you into the light. He'll show you His grace. Wait no longer. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these truths, even more important than we know how to even process right now. And what message more uncomfortable, but more crucial than this one for our own day and time. Father, come and be merciful to us. We plead the blood of Jesus. And we ask you now in strength of his grace, not of our own, to come and to chart our path towards healing and repentance and change. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen.